Good morning. It's great to be with you again. Um, yeah, you, you are really blessed to have Michael Rader coming. I, I have a, a, a leadership coach, uh, and I need one, um, but I'm trading him in after about two or three years, and I'm going. I'm putting myself under Michael Rader's um, help to learn how to preach better. Um, and perhaps you may give me advice later on how I can do that. Anyhow, but you're, Michael is a, an, an extraordinary uh, speaker, so well done. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence with us. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the light of the world and you offer to us light in a dark and mad world. And we pray that you would help us to unlearn stuff and to learn stuff from you that we would be transformed. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, uh, the heading in your book is quite, quite a clever one. I think the revolutionary stories, I didn't think of that. Um, but I think of this story as the first Australian in the Bible because he, he gets wealthy and retires. So he doesn't just keep working forever, but he thinks, okay, I'm going to enjoy this. I shared this uh, sermon, not, not this particular sermon, but spoke from this passage many years ago at a Chinese church in Sydney, and I suggest that was the first time I had the thought of you know, the first Australian bloke came out. I said, no, 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 he's Chinese. He's the first Chinese guy in the Bible. We can argue about that later. I wonder if you had a choice between looking healthy or being healthy, which would you choose? If you, Because I, I have known people who look really healthy, but discovered afterwards they were very, very unwell. Or how about um, looking smart or being smart? Or perhaps um, looking successful or being successful? Is it the appearance? Is it the shallow sort of edge of things or something deep? The story we hear that Jesus tells this time is about a man who looks remarkably successful, would have been spoken of very highly in his community, from his old school network or whatever else, and yet was an utter fool and failure. And um, it's quite challenging, this story, because if, if, if you can't look at this man who is so successful and agree with Jesus that he's not just, just missing one or two things he should have had to fill out the picture, but his whole life can be summed up with the word fool, well, then... You are, perhaps without meaning to, having to say, well, I think actually Jesus Christ is a fool for calling this man a fool. I think you need to work out who's the fool in this, the person who tells the story or the person in the story. Uh, so let's have a look at it. We, it's, it's Luke 12, as you heard really well read. And firstly, we meet a man who's distracted. Um, if you were to read the rest of uh, Luke 12, just even, even let your eye flow over it, Jesus is teaching some pretty serious stuff about Judgment Day, about God's care for his people, about the unforgivable sin. These are the sort of things you want to be paying attention to. Jesus, as it were, stops to take a breath, maybe have a, a, a drink or something, and then, and then it says in verse 13, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if you can see the connection between that request and anything Jesus has been talking about, you're a genius. No, perhaps not a genius. You're very creative. Because there's no connection at all. Here's a guy who's, who cares enough to go and hear Jesus. He's travelled out to hear him speak. 
he's sitting close enough to the front because it was the largest crowd to be able to call out to Jesus. But he can't pay attention because he's been ripped off in dealing with his father's inheritance. Now, the Jews had very clear laws about how, what percentage of the inheritance you got. But having gone through my mother's um, demise in the last couple of years, um, it was interesting looking at the way that the family responded to the will. Uh, it's, it's remarkable how people can fight so hard when the body's still almost warmish. And I've seen that as a minister, people go into the house of people even before the funeral and steal stuff from the house. It's appalling. But you know, as they say, where there's a will, there's a way to fight over it. And this was going on. It's a very ancient problem. The humans are exactly the same in, in, in all the deep ways in almost every culture over time. And this guy cannot pay attention to Jesus. He hasn't got some idiot like Ian or even Michael Rader speaking. But he's got, he's got Jesus himself speaking. And yet he can't pay attention. He's, he's churned up over about this financial rip-off he feels his big brother is doing to him. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now it's not that Jesus doesn't care about justice, he does. But in terms of triage and that which my wife's involved with, there's a much more urgent thing to pay attention to than the fact that this guy's not getting as much out of the inheritance, uh, common enough as that is. So Jesus replies, man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? And as you know, the irony is that he is actually the judge in the, in the most important sense. But he says, I'm not, doing, I'm not going down that road for you. I'm not going to be used by you to deal with a, a trivial issue that is obsessing you, this distracted man. But then he can see with this man that this man is not unique, is he? You know, that you can be sitting in church, you can even come not just to Sunday church, but to something like this, but you can't pay attention because something is, has happened to you where you think you've been mistreated, ripped off financially, and it can really burn you up. So when, when my mother died, my brother and I, who were sort of were joint, whatever it is, look after the handing out of inheritance, much to my sister Lyndall's frustration, um, we had to work out whether or not to pursue my brother-in-law who had stolen hundreds of thousands of dollars from my mother. Which means, of course, at that point he stole it from us as well. But, and, but it really is annoying that mum loaned him this money in good faith and he stole from her. And um, it, it can really it can get under your skin because it's so wrong and you want justice. But Jesus says, no, there's something much more important going on. So here he talks to the... He goes from talking to the man, in verse 14, Jesus speaking to the individual. Verse 15 and 16, Jesus talks to the whole crowd because he can see this man is not actually unique, the way in which he's eaten up by stuff which distracts him from the real important stuff. And he called him, the man called him teacher, so Jesus gives him some teaching. Look at verse 15. I wonder if we ought to actually have this on a plaque, you know, maybe in, in the wall in your house or maybe in your diary or something to keep reminding you. Look at this. This is... Dangerous, revolutionary stuff. Then Jesus said to them, the whole crowd, watch out, be on your guard. And these are military words. These are things you say to, to a small army that's in enemy territory. You be, be alert. There are people out there who are seeking to kill you. Be alert. Be on guard. What's the danger? Against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Uh, the wisdom of Jesus. He knows that there are different sorts of greed. 
there's greed just for money. There's greed for power. Um, there's greed for applause, for fame. There's different sorts of greed. I remember my um, youngest daughter, who I'm hoping to see this afternoon, uh, lives in Manly. Uh, a couple of years back, we were talking about something from Je that Jesus had said, and, and she's not herself yet a Christian. She's sort of she's never been committed to Christ. She can't stand hypocrisy. So I think if she does finally commit, she's going to really commit. But um, she's got a softish heart towards the whole business. But she said, oh, I don't love money. And I said, well, um, no, no one actually loves money. But you do love what money buys. I said, what do you mean? So I listened. He said, yeah, yeah, I do, actually. Now I think about it. But uh, it's not money per se. Or some people might have a crush on the, on the actual paper. But it's the stuff that money can buy you. As I say, it could be for you, applause, praise, success, being noticed, finally getting your father's approval. There's all sorts of things that we are hungry for. And the driver's Jesus says, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. I remember um, it's the 10th commandment, and some people think it shouldn't be there. You know, it's as if God had nine good solid commandments. You shall not murder and stuff like that, and he just wanted to even it out. So he added coveting. But actually, a lot of the worst sins in the Bible start with coveting. Um, some of the horror stories start with coveting. Um, but I remember reading a, a, an interesting thing from an old retired priest, a Roman Catholic priest from New York, which is a city that is driven by money and success and drive in a way that few, few cities in the world can match. But he said in all his decades and decades and decades of taking confessions, he heard all sorts of terrifying things people admitted to, seeking God's forgiveness. He said not once did anyone ever come and confess to the sin of covetousness. In a city that is driven by covetousness, more, more, more. Don't be at ease. Go for more. Get bigger. Get richer. Get more successful. He said it was extraordinary in a city that was almost defined by greed. Uh, even if you put a positive spin on it, he said no one ever came and said, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned, for I've coveted. Uh, I wonder, have there been times when you've spent time confessing to God that you've been driven by covetousness? Uh, seems to me, it's nice not knowing you because I'm not having a go at anyone. Seems to me a lot of people who do a second or a third degree, and, and I'm, I'm not against second and third degrees if your first one's no good, but um, it's like people who do two doctorates. What, what was wrong with our first one? But, um, <clears throat> but a lot of it is out of boredom, partly. And secondly, it's because if I do this degree, I will then get promoted further and faster. So that study is very rarely in our culture a love of knowledge. Can be, but it's quite rare. It's just a way to make more money, isn't it? So you've got to be careful as you go back into another degree or a doctor or a third doctor or whatever else. Um, I say, I'm not against further study. I, could, I need further study. My wife's doing a master's in midwifery. Now, she's an emergency nurse. She laughs because... And, and I think it's kind of fun because who would have imagined? Ali's just not, she's not an academic type person, but she's going to finish up with a master's. So I'm going to have to sort of doff my hat to her every time I walk past her, you know. So I'm not against study, but, but just realise so much of what we've done is driven by the desire for more, more money. I need more, I'm poor. And Jesus says, be careful for all kinds of covetousness. Uh, greed works in different ways for different people. And then Jesus sees that because this is a danger for all of us and the whole audience, not just this man, he then keeps talking to the whole of them. So verse 16 and on is also to them, not to him, or it includes him. So firstly, we've seen the distracted man. 
or if you like, the apprentice fool. And now we move on to the deceived man and, frankly, the accidentally deceptive man. It is decisive. Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain man, a certain rich man, yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So the man is rich when the story begins. Okay? He doesn't become rich. He was already rich. And beautifully, Jesus says, the ground of a certain man produced an abundance. He's given the credit where it belongs. Right? It's, it's the ground of the certain rich man that produced all this stuff. And um, so he's rich and he's now become super rich. And I know when I was, before I got saved by Jesus, my, my career goal was just to be rich. I lived in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. My father had a shop in the eastern suburbs uh, on the corner. And I, I mixed with, and through a number of friends who got expelled from private schools who joined me at Sydney High, I began to mix with private school people and, and go to parties in houses that were just amazing. And I, 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 needed, I needed to be rich. Even though, as, as I spent time, because I read a, had a little list of the girls I was going to marry, because I worked out the easiest way to get rich was to marry it. And um, <laughs> back then I was moderately handsome. And um, I thought I was in with a chance. And I had a little list of these rich girls, that I, and, and I knew which one I was targeting, but Frank was going out with her. I said, you can't, you can't, you've got to wait your turn. And, um, <laughs> but she, her father had... But her father was about the most miserable man I'd ever seen. I won't mention his name because he was quite famous then. But, but I, I wanted to be rich. I needed to be rich. And um, I needed to become rich, although I was rich. This is the ridiculous thing, isn't it, in our culture? I, I am poorer than all of my brothers and sisters. I am poorer than all of my friends I went to school with, even though some of them spent nearly two decades addicted to heroin. But they still managed to finish up. That's because I'm, I'm a financial fool, okay? I'm not asking for your sympathy. Um, so I, very easy for me to feel that I'm poor. Um, but I'm not. I am in the top 5% in the world. 95% of people would give anything to swap places with me. Now, my wife and I am going to mention this, not because I'm hoping not to become too focused on it, because we bought a house two weeks ago. It's a little two-bedroom workers' cottage down beside the Shoalhaven. And um, we, we looked at our possible debt capacity and we thought we could buy an outdoor dunny out near Campbelltown if we wanted to buy back into Sydney. So we've um, finished up with this... Lovely little place, nicer than I would have imagined. But, you know, up till two weeks ago, I didn't have a house. Now I've just got a big debt. It's great. Uh, but I managed to get the loan without having to sell a kidney, um, which was nice and a bit of a surprise. But see, here I am thinking I'm not rich. My only car is a 2002 Toyota commuter van that we've turned into. A, the other car I'm driving around belongs to the church. Blah, 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 blah. I've now got a huge debt and a beautiful wife and all sorts of... But I am even... But I am in the top 5% in the world. If you own a house or have a debt towards a house, you are also, you may well be in the top 3 or 4%. And yet we feel poor. Yet we feel, more, I need more. Um, greed is a dangerous thing. This man is rich like we are rich before the story starts. And yet he becomes mega rich. This is the same problem I have every time I get my salary from the Anglican church. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do with all this money? <laughs> How, how am I going to invest it? This was a couple of like, what am I going to do? 
I've got all these crops because in, in those days your wealth was in real stuff like it was in expensive clothes or lumps of gold or food stored away. They weren't sort of theoretical banks in the same way that we have them. So he said, what am I going to do with all my resources? Well, this guy has become successful because of a reason. He's a good thinking man. He works out a plan and then off he goes. Then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. And that phrase actually found its way into various parts of English. Eat, drink and be merry. People don't know where it comes from and how tragic it is. So this man, if you saw him, would be a model of success. He'd be the sort of bloke invited back to his old private school to give talks about his life. You know, this is, he'd, he'd have awards named after him. Very, very successful. Not a criminal. There's no, there's no hint that he got the money deceptively. He's got it through hard work and the blessing of good land and good thinking. So he is a very, very successful man. But you know where the story is going. Um, sometimes when I think we deal with parables like this, it's sometimes good not to have the Bible read beforehand. So you, you, you can get the whiplash feeling when you get, as there is so often in Jesus' stories, for, for us, we would often look at a man like this and say, wow, he's a successful, hard-working man. You know, um, perhaps I could learn some lessons from him. Uh, but in the Jewish culture, Jesus speaking, is he's a man who would, they would think he's also been blessed by God. That God has blessed him. That's why he's wealthy. They saw that all good things came from God. Wealth was seen to be a good thing, and so it is. Um, it's a dangerous thing, but it's a good thing. Um, but then you get the whiplash when God finally talks to him. But let's face it, we do admire this man. I would like to swap places with him. When I was a, um, all these private school kids I met through my mates, Randall and Rick, um, who got expelled from Scots and joined us, um, Scots College. Uh, there was a guy called Jamie. Oh, it doesn't matter if I mention his name. Jamie Watson, he's, he's, um, he inherited $2 million from his grandfather, all of his, his two his two brothers and sisters as well. And this is two million bucks back in the early 70s, so it's probably worth you know six, seven, eight million bucks, particularly compared to land prices. He would, and he, you'd sometimes see him just looking off into the distance. And we'd say, you're thinking about your money, aren't you, that when you turn 21, you're going to get for nothing. Boy, I would have done anything to swap places with Jamie. right? Because he had it made. He had freedom and access. He could actually borrow from that money from banks even before he got it, because they knew it was legally his. That's what this guy thought. He's so successful. And in the Jewish culture, honestly successful, obviously blessed by God. Everyone would admire him. It's interesting his speech, though. His little speech where he talks in the middle of the story has about 50 words in it. Eleven of them are me, my, or I. Right? There's no one else in the story. He doesn't talk to anyone else. He doesn't think about anyone else. He is utterly, ruthlessly, successfully self-centred. Me, my, I. No sense of us, our, the society that he's part of. So although he's not doing anything corrupt, he's profoundly wicked. Profoundly wicked. Not thankful to God. And worse than that, verse 20. Someone comes into his room. He said, you, know, you can imagine, he's sitting beside the pool that he'll probably have, also have that renovated uh, sometime soon. Um, drinking a, you know, a, some classy little pretentious beer, not just your ordinary beer, but some craft beer, or having a martini or something like that, and he's sipping it thinking, 
<laughs> I really have got it made. This I've arrived where I always wanted to be. This is fantastic. And perhaps getting full of his own ego and knowing that he'd be so well spoken of at the club, etc. And then someone walks into him and says, you really are a fool, aren't you? You really are a moron. You really have no idea how to live. You are an utter, total failure. You are a fool. Now, you know that Jesus says you're not to call someone a fool. I remember saying to a boy at the school I served at once, I said, I'd given him, I had the system, a couple of warnings, and then you get a, a short detention, and if you do it again, you get a bigger detention, and uh, if you do it again, you get executed on Friday afternoon. Uh, <clears throat> you know, this kid had been a bit silly, and I'd given him his two warnings. I said, one more, do it one more time, and you've lost 45 minutes of Friday afternoon. Well, anyhow, he did it pretty soon after, and I said to him, you really are a fool, aren't you? You are an idiot. You're a fool. Congratulations. See me after the lesson. Anyhow, he sees me after the lesson. And I said, first thing I've got to do is I've got to apologise to you. Jesus is very clear I'm not to call you a fool. I've confessed it to God. It was sinful. I don't know if you're a fool or not. Only God can make that summative statement. To call someone a fool is to sum them up. Person, you might say that's a foolish action. But Jesus says you are not allowed to call a person fool. Sum them up. Only God can sum up people in that judgmental way. So he looked hopeful. I said, you're still getting that attention, but I just shouldn't have called you a fool. You know? And I'm sorry about that. The person who, who is so rude to this successful man is God. So I think even as Christians, we might be tempted to applaud this man who God says, utter, total failure. It's important that we see he's not saying so much success, just a little weakness here. He's saying, no, 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 the whole shebang is one massive failure. We need to hear the power and the offence of this revolutionary story that Jesus tells. It's offensive to us, even more weird in the culture of Jesus, where to be rich was usually taken as a mark of blessing. Uh, we need to hear what Jesus is saying. And you need to decide, is Jesus a fool for being so hard on this fool? Uh, do you think Jesus is being a bit, you know, one-dimensional? God looks at this man's life, however many years it was, finished suddenly and hurriedly, unexpectedly, as happens, doesn't it? You probably have had friends like that. got some lovely friends that, whose husbands just died in the kitchen one day. Actually, two people at our church, where the dad in one family, the husband of this other lady, lovely, lovely, just died in the kitchen. Bang! There they were. They hit the ground dead. Some of us die more slowly, but this guy just dies, bang, like that, unexpectedly, not feeling sick. He's in the middle of triumphing himself, and, and he's dead. And he's a fool. And... Uh, I heard one guy say this very cleverly, this picture of, you know, the guy gets buried and he has a marble monument put over his grave with his dates of birth and death and some of his achievements and what a model he is, what an example he is to us all. And when everyone goes home from the funeral, an angel comes down and writes one word over them all, fool. Right? And this is what Jesus is saying. The first man we met, uh, he was an apprentice fool. He was a man who was in danger because he was obsessed by getting the wealth that would make him successful. The second man is a deceptive man because he looks so successful, but he is actually an utter 
total tragic failure. And Jesus is telling this to the whole crowd and he's telling it to us because your culture, my culture, our culture will keep on teaching you that what Jesus says in verse 15 is actually rubbish. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You should write that over your television screen. right? Or have it in, you know, wherever you watch things that will teach you about our culture. Because the, the, it's, it's not just that we have some of the most intelligent people in our society working out ads. And they use psychologists. They, they really prepare the ads brilliantly. Now, you may look at some ads and think, what a stupid ad that is. But the ads that are aimed at you, you don't even notice them. You drink them in. I remember I went to watch a movie with a guy. And he was a um, recently, recent convert. Um, he was actually converted through Hillsong, but he joined us at, at Barney's. And we went and saw a movie. Great big, tall Chinese bloke. I've forgotten his name, sorry. But he, um, we went to this movie and there was a beer ad. I still remember it. And, and I'm thinking, this is about the stupidest ad I've ever seen. It's just utterly foolish and stupid. Well produced. And the guy, he's a genuinely Christian man, leans because he said, oh, I love this ad. I'm thinking, you moron. But it wasn't aimed at me. It was aimed at 20-year-old blokes. So he's drinking it in. But the, aims, the ads that are aimed at old dudes like me about security and travel and you deserve all the superannuation. I go, mm, 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 yeah, absolutely. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I, yeah. And, and the cleverest people in our society are not, well, they're not only working in medical breakthroughs, but they're working in advertising. Now, look, there's a place for advertising. I know, some, I know one fine Christian man who works in advertising had quite a challenge to only say honest things in the ads. Um, but you need to face the fact you are awash in very brilliant communication aimed to keep you greedy. You never have enough. In fact, they'll loan you the money to buy their products, you moron. Right? So they're not only making money from you by buying the product, but they're making money from the interest they charge you on your credit card and other things. It's a, it's a game. And we need to be aware that's the sea you live in. You're living in a sewer when it comes to wisdom. And when you feel you're being successful and all your friends think you're probably in danger of being a complete failure. So says Jesus, not me. So why is Jesus, so why is God so hard on this man? Why doesn't he just say, nah, you could have got a high distinction, but you're only getting the credit because you needed to be a little bit religious. Go to church, go to synagogue sometimes and, and stuff like that. Give a bit of money to the poor. No, that's not what he says. The whole thing was a debacle. Why is Jesus so hard on this man? Two basic reasons. The first is that he had prepared for so many of life's possibilities but had chosen to ignore the one certainty of life. Right? Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, written by the great wise man Solomon. Right? It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every person and the living should take it to heart. Right? Death is the destiny of every person. The living should take it to heart. The one thing I know about you is that you will die. You may never have sex. You may never own a house. You may never travel overseas, etc., etc., etc. You will die. 
you may well have a funeral, depending on how you die and where you die and what situation. Lots of people in Ukraine at the moment are not having funerals. I can't guarantee you a funeral. Death is the destiny. That's what's on your ticket that should have been attached to your wrist when you were born. It's just a question of how long the journey is. Is it, is it you know, central to Redfern or is it central to Melbourne? You know, but you, that, that's the destiny. And the living should take it to heart. Now, you live in a society that will teach you to be a moron. Children ask questions about death and adults teach them to stop it. Even if you don't say, shut up, don't ask that question, our discomfort often at it. Uh, they, they, they pick that up and we tell them nonsense uh, about death, etc. And men are worse than women on this. If I can be sexist for a moment. Right? My experience in Australia is women will often ask the question of death when it looks them in the face, whereas men will hide behind a beer and a joke. Right? And we think we've coped by it. Take it to heart, the great wise man Solomon says. So he had prepared for life. He had much stored up for many years to come. But what Jesus says at the end of that is, this is how it would be with everyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. He was a complete bankrupt in the area that mattered. There's an Italian fable, uh, one of those stories that has got lots of truth in it, even though the story itself may not be true, of a, of a fool. Right? You know how they used to have those people, if you're rich, you could, it's like having a television set. And said you'd employ someone who had a good sense of humour and who was a fool. They, they turn up in Shakespeare. Often they're the one actually saying the wisdom. Um, but anyway, in this story, the wealthy man in Italy has got a fool. In the end, he says, look, fool, come here. He said, I know you mean well, but I've had enough of your jokes and it's the same jokes again and again and again. So um, go. Uh, don't, you know, he said, but what I will give you, uh, he said, I'll give you as a parting gift. And he gave him this beautifully, um, expensively carved uh, walking stick. Staff looked really classy, as wood can. He said, you take this with you, and wherever you go, if you ever find a person more stupid, more foolish than you, give it to them. But I doubt that you will. A few years later, the fool is back in the town where the rich man lived, the powerful man lived, and he hears that the man is dying. So he asks if he can see his old master, and the master says yes. Uh, so he says, you can come in. And so they have this conversation. The fool says... Um, what, what's happening? He said, well, he said, I'm about to go on a long journey. He said, oh, you know, talk about death. And he says, um, uh, when will you come back? He said, no, never. No, he said, uh, did you know you were going to go on this journey? And he said, yeah, I suppose I did. He said, so you've made preparations for the journey? And the man said, no, no, I haven't. No. So the fool says, so you're going on a journey from which you'll never come back. You knew you were going to go on it one day, but you made no preparations. And he handed his beautiful walking stick back to the man who gave it to him and said, here, you take this. You are the greatest fool I've ever met. Now, I, you, you get the truth in it, don't you? See, you can be so successful, so powerful, and yet such a loser. And Jesus thinks it's a danger for all of us because he doesn't just tell the story to that man. He tells it to all of them and to all of us. He was prepared for life's possibilities but chose to ignore life's certainty. 
Bill Clinton was a president of America, a highly disreputable piece of work, as it turns out. Um, but he did say one of the ten books he thought everyone should read was a book by Ernst Becker, an atheist, uh, called The Denial of Death, where Ernst Becker argues that Western culture, the culture that we're awash in here, is the most death-denying culture ever in human history. It is absolutely determined not to allow you to grow up and to live with an awareness of death. And, and he goes through all the evidence for that. He says so much of our concern about youth, beauty, health, exercise, all sorts of things is partly this desire to keep forgetting the one certainty. So Jesus will call you to be a revolutionary. I meant to bring with me, I've got a little plastic skull that one of my daughters gave me as a as a present, because she'd seen me on Facebook asking if anyone had a real skull, uh, which I wanted for a sermon some years ago. So she gave me a plastic one, which I leave near the front door. It sort of alarms some people. And uh, the reason is because there was a time in English history where wealthy young men in particular would have on their desk a skull. And sometimes it had the words under it, as as you are, I once was, as I am, you soon will become. To remind them of the shortness of life uh, and the way in which it can all end very quickly. That's wisdom. In our society, you'll be mocked for it. Ah, oh, that's so macabre. No, no, no. It's just being an adult. Right? And yet your society teaches you to be fools and to stay. Well, it's not even babies because babies get it. So that's the first thing. He is a fool. Because he seemed to prepare for things. He could give lectures on wisdom and preparation, and yet he'd not prepare for the one certainty. So he dies a complete bankrupt. And this is the thing. He dies a bankrupt with nothing. He falls into eternity with no legitimate money. And yet Jesus himself, as you know, was dying to make him rich. Jesus was literally had come to die to make us rich. And yet this guy dies a bankrupt completely unnecessarily. Let me read you from what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. He says to this group of people at church, You say, I am rich, I am successful, and I need nothing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What a shock that is to these people. They thought, hey, I'm, I'm successful. You know, I'm rich. I've made it. But Jesus says, let me give you the, the X-ray diagnosis. You do not realise that you are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I advise you, the teacher says, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. So this is why Jesus comes, isn't it? That we may have true wealth. We'll look at that after morning tea the heart of that but you know the, the wealth is the wealth of the sort of wealth you get as a Christian I remember when I became a Christian I had no idea that I'd just become unspeakably wealthy and part of my last 40 years is just exploring a little bit about this treasure that I have um, so the first thing you become rich in pardon completely perfectly wonderfully pardoned and I do love the story and frankly I, didn't, I was going to check up with Hans I may have told it to you last time I was here but I'm going to tell it to you again anyhow because um, it's a ripper. True story. Priest up in New Guinea. And um, he has a lady in the congregation who lives in a little bush hut, knows very little about anything. 
in terms of education. But she says to him, Jesus comes and talks to me sometimes in my hut. He didn't believe it, but she kept saying, no, he does, he comes and talks to me. And he said, okay, he said, next time Jesus appears to you in the hut, um, ask him what was the terrible sin that your priest did as a young man that he is still ashamed of. She said, okay. And so a couple of weeks later, she, she sees him in, in church, and as he's coming out, he says, oh, Jesus appeared to me. And he, he takes her away from the crowd, doesn't want to hear, you know, just in case it was right. And she said, I, I asked Jesus the question you gave me. And he said, tell him, tell your priest, I do not remember. Right? And, and that is, I would think that it probably was Jesus that turned up. Because the Bible says that God, our sins and lawless deeds, he will remember no more. So that sin that you did this week that's still haunting you perhaps, or the sin that maybe you did decades and decades ago that you feel shame and embarrassed about and hurt by, you confess that sin to, to Jesus, the teacher, the saviour. He remembers it no more. So don't be a bore and keep talking to him about it. And I say that to myself. I've had, this week I've had a feeling for a number of reasons of what a, what a joke I am as a Christian. And I was thinking, okay, Jesus, I, don't, I, don't, I know I shouldn't go to heaven, but just maybe if I can not go to hell, just you know, go into nothingness. Um, and, and I have to keep talking to myself to believe that the pardon is complete and perfect. Christ died to give us that rich. And because we've got pardon, we've got peace. We've got peace with God, as it says in Romans 5. We have peace with God now. Uh, there's no tension between you and God. You're, you're forgiven from his side. I, I've listened to, I don't know if you listen to music. I, it's odd. My daughter, Ellie, who I'll see this afternoon, who's not a card-carrying Christian, but she, she sends me Christian music. I don't particularly like listening to Christian music, although I've discovered there's better Christian music around than I thought, and I've discovered it through Ellie. Ellie has sent me some songs by a guy called Jonathan McReynolds, and he's got a song called Enough. And I would encourage you to look it up on Spotify or even it's on YouTube, Enough by Jonathan Reynolds. Absolutely beautiful song, uh, arguing against this idea that you, you haven't done well enough, you can't have peace with God. We are rich in peace with God, rich in pardon, rich in position. Um, God doesn't just sort of take you from the prison and release you by pardon onto the pavement. He adopts you into the family. So it's from the prison, skip the pavement, into the palace. You are a son or daughter of God Almighty. When you look at the size of the stars and the universe, right, your dad made all that. Uh, so you're, that, that's this amazing position that we have, being able to call him father. And we're rich in promise. We've got a massive inheritance. It's fun if you get an inheritance. It was fun knowing I'd get some money from my mother's inheritance. It was a bummer when she died because, as I said at her funeral, she was an unmitigated blessing, my mother. Just an extraordinary person. Um, and, but inheritances are fun to get, aren't they? Particularly if you don't know they're coming. Well, we have, if you're a Christian person, you have a massive inheritance. Uh, you may have millions coming when your mother and father finally stop hanging around the planet and die uh, so you can get your, house, you know, get all that, your hands on that money. Not that anyone thinks like that. We've just bought a little house. Have I told you that? Yes, I'm sorry to be a bore. But here's what I've done for years now, and I'm going to keep doing it. Because we have got the classic, sort of the, the worst house in the nicest area. It's a lovely area, but it's a perfectly livable house. Um, uh, but the, I love the song, and I'm, I keep singing it um, to myself at various times. 
which the black American slaves sang. And I think they wrote it for the time when they would go out of their shocking little huts that they were forced to live in, past these palaces built on their slave labour in various parts of the southern part of the USA, and they would sing this song. I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. And I think it was to remind them. For a split second, they're living in a barn. And this jerk is living in this palace. But they have a home in glory land that outshines the sun. And this little place we've got at Tarara is much nicer than I ever thought uh, we'd ever have. I think I, made, I used to say to Alison, I'll buy you a place at West... Broken Hill, because the further you're away from the water, the more sensible the price of land becomes, and you can't get much further away than West Broken Hill, not even East Broken Hill. Um, we finished up with this place you know, near a river, a couple of miles from the beach. Um, but it's nothing. And we're determined not to be... I'm very thankful for it. I can't believe it's happened. It still may send us broke. That's OK. Um, but to remember, you are rich in promise... And I am determined, as is Alison, my wife, not to allow this little hut that we have, this little, the equivalent of a wombat's hole in the ground. It's very nice. It's a brief passing moment, right? It's like a hotel room. I'm in a really nice hotel room. Thank you very much for that, where I'm staying. But imagine if the hotel room I was putting was rubbish or if it had carpet that looked revolting. Ugh, who chose that colour? Think I can put up with it for two nights? Of course I can. That house you're living in that should be bigger and needs an extension and needs your seventh new set of curtains since you've been in or whatever else. It's just a hotel room. Be thankful for it. But don't obsess about it. It's not really your home. And I can barely bring myself to call anything home. Now, because of some time ago when I was looking at the book of Revelation, that's my home. I've got a home in glory land. It's even nicer than a little hut in Tarara. So that's what this passage, this is a revolutionary passage, isn't it? Right? And it releases you. Enjoy the blessings of the land that has produced wealth and the, the brain that God has given you and the education you got and the good habits you picked up from your family. So enjoy them all with thankfulness. But don't become a fool. And I, I have noticed with some of my friends, people who I really love and, and really like and respect, that the battle about this thing goes on. Uh, we've got some friends we're going to see in the next couple of days, Alison and I, who I think are being seduced by the success that their hard work and God's blessing has given them. Beautiful children, right schools, a couple of misadventures along the way, um, left his work, is now a consultant, is making a fortune. He's learning how to fly, doesn't go to church often on Sunday because he's away at gliding lessons. So, you know, these are some of my favourite people in the world, but frankly I'm worried for them that they are being seduced uh, by all these trinkets right? as if the essence of life is to have as much life as you can before death. What a lot of rubbish. Right? You've got his, his life. I'm pretty much close to the end, I think. But then there's an eternity, right? And this man died, he lived and died as a fool because he treated, you know, his first year in primary school as if it was the whole of his life. And so that's what this is saying here to us, isn't it? Saying, you know, verse 15, 
Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, but in the treasures we have from God himself and the treasure that is God himself. Well, let me lead in prayer, then we'll probably sing. Is that right? Lord Jesus, this is a really dangerous story. Um, we thank you for the great gift of wealth that we all here enjoy. Um, and we are thankful for it and thankful for those who made it possible for us. And, um, but we pray that you would set our hearts free, that we would be enamoured by your love for us and the treasures of knowing you. Uh, help us to believe in the reality of these treasures, the only treasures that will last forever. Uh, but we thank you for the wonderful pardon we have from you, the enjoyment of peace with you, uh, the position we have as your sons and daughters and those promises that we can absolutely rely on, that we have a home in glory land that outshines the sun. Help us to be truly wise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.